Well, we did look at a sizable chunk of Matthew chapter 11 last Sunday morning, whilst today and next week we'll slow the pace right down and on both occasions we'll be looking at just three verses. We've seen Jesus defend the ministry of John the Baptist in the strongest possible way. And what assurance we find in this, because we see that well, first of all, even a believer with such a clear appointment to ministry and with such an unflinching conviction to fulfill that ministry, even one like John the Baptist may be taken over by doubts and uncertainties. And so we realise that actually those occasions when we perhaps might also be taken over by such doubts, well, that actually is something that can be common to any Christian. But then secondly also we observe Christ's love and loyalty towards John. And what assurance there is for us. We can so easily and so often stumble and falter and yet Christ is for us. But Jesus also, you remember, reprimands the crowds. Crowds can be very fickle, can't they? One day, the crowds were shouting about Jesus, Hosanna. A week later, they were shouting, crucify him. Crowds can be very fickle. And once they were rejoicing over the arrival of John the Baptist, but now so easily and quickly, many of them seem to be turning against John. But perhaps most surprising of all is our discovery of the vast numbers of people who actually rejected the ministry of Jesus. Yes, they were dazzled by the miracles, and yes, they were startled by his teaching, but the majority didn't actually take on board the things he was saying. They were hearers of his words, but they were not doers. Most of his listeners in those vast crowds continued to build their house on sand despite the firm warning that Jesus had left them with at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So we've seen a believer with doubts and uncertainties but loved and kept by Christ. Then those who simply followed the crowd but with hearts unmoved and unchanged. And I wonder, perhaps, do you find yourself in one of those positions this morning? And then as we move into verses 25 to 27, Jesus speaks to a subject that we've actually considered recently in our study in Romans, where Paul the Apostle laments over so many of his Jewish brethren who are not saved and who reject the gospel. You recall how Paul teaches on the topic of election, that God from one lump of clay, from the one single lump of humanity, God chooses some vessels for honour, but also chooses other vessels for dishonour, those who will be saved and those who will not be saved. And Paul poses the question, doesn't he, who dares question the potter? Well, Jesus isn't going to use the same vocabulary as Paul, but he's about to address the same lesson. 
Matthew says at verse 25, at that time. Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't always run strictly in chronological order. Matthew sometimes orders his material according to themes. And that's perfectly legitimate. In Luke's gospel, where things are more chronological in their order, we discover that in addition to sending out the 12 apostles, which you remember Jesus has been giving teaching about, he also, on another occasion, sent out 70 other of his disciples in much the same way as he sent out the 12. And you'll find that recorded in Luke chapter 10. And it was after those 70 came back that Jesus speaks these words that we have recorded here in Matthew chapter 11. And what Jesus does for us here is draw back the curtain a little so that we see things from the perspective of heaven. It's so important. Too easily and too often, we only see things exactly the way the world would look at them. But as Christian people, we must learn to see things from heaven's perspective. And that's what we get when we read our Bibles. And Jesus provides us with a glimpse of that which has been agreed and understood between himself and his Father in heaven from eternity past. Such a privilege for us to hear these things coming from the lips of the Saviour. And so we're going to learn three things that Jesus teaches us. And here's the first. The Father's sovereignty in people's response to the gospel. The Father's sovereignty over people's response. So look at what he says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from some. You've revealed them to others. There are those who don't accept the gospel, not simply because it's within themselves not to, but God has actually hidden the gospel truths from them. The lack of penetration of the gospel amongst people might, you suppose, be a reason for dejection and for Christians becoming all melancholy and down in the dumps. Why are so few responding in the right way? And you might expect that this is, this is a cause for coming before God in despair and bemused that so little fruit is being seen for the efforts that we're putting in. Uh, perhaps you've sometimes felt like that. You've looked, why do so few seem to be added to the church? Uh, and perhaps the natural response is to try and find something or someone to blame. It must be someone's fault. Maybe it's the church's fault. Maybe it's the elders' fault. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's the fault of the program we're using. Whatever it is. And in doing that, we forget that Jesus knew exactly the same discouragement. And so did the Apostle Paul. And you only have to go back to see those woes that Jesus pours out against these cities where so many refused to listen even to him and refused to be convinced even by Christ in person, in front of them, performing miracles. That's how hard the human heart is. 
And yet, Jesus calls out to his Father with thanksgiving and with praise. How can he do that? Why would he do that? For one reason. Because the Father is Lord of all. The Father is Lord over everything. Even this. No, especially this. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul impresses upon us always to pray with thanksgiving? Because God is working out his perfect and unchanging and unfailing will and purposes in this world. There's not one mistake being made by the Lord in what happens in this world. There's not even the smallest thing which escapes his attention. There's not even the tiniest thing which lies outside of his control. And there's never a reason not to be thankful as a Christian. And that goes completely against the way the world thinks. Because in the world, you're only ever thankful for those things which are obviously pleasant or advantageous or to your liking or how you'd planned it and hoped it would be. Then I'll be thankful. But when bad things happen, when troubles come our way, But you see, for the Christian, as with Jesus, there's something far bigger going on. And Jesus kind of draws back the curtain and say, look, and learn, and remember. There's one who is Lord of heaven and earth, and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And once you've figured out that this is what really matters, and once you've learned to submit yourself to that, then you can always come to God with thanksgiving. Even through the tears, there'll always be things that you have to thank God for. And when you actually get yourself into that place, the proof of that will be that you can, you can say what Jesus says in verse 26. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Even in the midst of the distresses, even in the midst of the sorrows, even in the midst of the griefs, so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. It is the Lord. That's the mark of a Christian heart. And what is the theme of Christ's thanksgiving here? That these things, by which he means these things of the gospel and gospel proclamation, and there's nothing of greater importance than that, these things are on the one hand hidden from some, but revealed to others. Now, it may seem strange that Jesus give thanks, gives thanks that the gospel is hidden from the wise and the prudent. Why would he thank his Father that there are those who are not being saved? Well, it's not that people are remaining unsaved that Jesus is actually thankful for. Rather, 
that God is demonstrating his power and his grace in those who are being saved. And it's important to actually think about the words that Jesus uses here. The wise and the prudent he's talking about. And the wise and the prudent are those of worldly wisdom and understanding who in their own wisdom believe in their own sufficiency and believe in their own self-reliance. For such people, their claims for being right with God are the result of their own effort. They are the result of their own merit. It's only what they deserve, or so they think. If that were the case, it would be those individuals who are to be congratulated and applauded. Well done you for what you've managed to do. Pats on the back all round. But as long as they look to themselves, and as long as they depend upon themselves, the truths of the gospel remain hidden to them. And that's the issue, you see, that Jesus is talking about here. These are men and women who want to trust in themselves. These are men and women who want to trust in their own wisdom. These are men and women who want to rely upon their own wisdom. And to such, while they remain like that, the gospel remains hidden from them. Because when salvation truly comes, it must be all of God. And it must be very evident that it is all of God. It must be the clear testimony of those who are saved that it is all of God. And then it will be God who receives all the glory and praise. And this is what is good in God's sight. Those from whom the gospel is hidden are wise in their own eyes, prudent in their own sight. God hides the gospel from them so they can't claim any credit for themselves. It's as the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? The one who thinks he can debate everybody and win every argument. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's partly our theme this evening, by the way. The great Bible commentator Matthew Henry, he said this, some of the greatest scholars and the greatest statesmen have been the greatest strangers to the gospel. Therefore, it is to babes that the gospel is revealed. Now, you might have expected that in contrast to the wise and the prudent, Jesus might speak of the stupid and simple, but thankfully he doesn't. No, no, no. Because it's not issues of intellect, it's not issues of academic prowess to which Jesus is referring. Babes those who acknowledge 
their sin, their weakness, their total dependence upon God. That they have nothing. God is the one who has everything that they need. Completely reliant upon God. Those who simply humble themselves before the Lord. Convicted of their sins. To these, the gospel is revealed. It's that simple parable of Jesus, the Pharisee standing on the, on the street corner praising himself and the tax collector hiding away. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the babe. Total dependence upon God in his mercy and grace. Nothing is so likely to keep someone out of heaven and to prevent them from seeing Christ as they need to, than as the pride in their own heart. I heard one preacher say this, for as long as you think you are something, you will never be saved. That's the, the wise and the prudent. We must come as a babe. We, you must pray for, you must cultivate humility before God. Uh, our good friend J.C. Ryle, or at least you hope you feel like he's becoming a good friend. I, I consider him to be a very good friend. I remember um, Phil Arthur, who was a pastor up in uh, Lancaster for many years, talking about going to university and meeting loads and loads of really good friends. The only problem was they were all dead because he was reading about them in books and he was discovering the Puritans and the Reformation. Well, J.C. Ryle is such a friend to me. I trust he will be to you as well. He said this. Listen to this. is really important. Listen carefully to this. The beginning of the way to heaven is to realise that you're on your way to hell. Now that's worth repeating. The beginning of the way to heaven is to realise that you're on your way to hell. Jesus said it's those who are, those who will humble themselves, who will be exalted. Those who know, I'm heading to hell. Only Christ can get me to heaven. Are you there? And then there's such an important point at the end of verse 25. Unless the gospel is revealed to you, you'll never be saved. The gospel is to be preached to all. The gospel is for the entire world. But it's those to whom God chooses to reveal the gospel. Those vessels he's loved and chosen and predestined who receive it by faith and are saved. And this fits in precisely with the lessons we're learning in Romans. The reminder that we had the other week of the Lord opening Lydia's heart. God revealed the gospel to her. It wasn't that she sometimes, somehow, all on her own, managed to fathom it out. No, God revealed it to her, opened her heart, showed her the truth. We're like blindfolded prisoners, having the cell door unlocked for us. 
being led by the hand into the daylight, having someone unlock the chains that are holding us and removing the blindfold from our eyes. Unless someone comes and does that for us, we remain blindfolded and chained in the prison cell. Of course, that's the wonderful imagery that John Wesley, uh, Charles Wesley draws on in his hymn, And Can It Be? This is all God's sovereign doing, hiding the gospel from those who think they've already attained it for themselves and graciously revealing it to those who come to understand that it's all beyond anything I could do. This is what Paul says in verses 7 and 8 of Romans chapter 11. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it's written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And so it seems good in God's sight, and God is to be thanked. God has been pleased to establish those ways in which he is glorified and how he uses his instruments to do his work. His grace is his own. He may give it or withhold it as he pleases. And these are very deep and substantial truths, aren't they, that Jesus is talking about here, just as we've been reading in Romans. These are matters which, if true, and they are, determine how all men and women and boys and girls will fare on Judgment Day and where they'll spend eternity. And how can we be sure that these sayings of Christ can be relied upon? Well, that's quite an important question, isn't it? How can we be certain that these things that Jesus is saying are true? Well, Jesus will next give testimony of the commission that he's received from his Father. So this is the first part of verse 27. Christ's commission from God the Father. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, says Jesus. Now, whenever it comes to issues of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, you can be sure that your mental capacity is going to be taken beyond its limit. And yet, at the same time, of course, the Holy Spirit is able to bring you to a place of complete assurance and trust and conviction that this is the truth. So on that basis, let's consider some of these truths. Jesus is a man who also is God. In his divine nature, he is equal in power and glory and wisdom and might with the Father. But he also has a fully human nature. And he lived as a man. He lived with all the physical limitations that you and I have. He experienced all the kinds of things that you and I experience, although, of course, he uniquely remained sinless. And as a man, he depends upon the means of grace which you and I rely upon. So, 
we discover that Christ is a man of the Scriptures. He reads them, learns them, memorizes them, teaches them, applies them in his own life. Do you remember when Satan was tempting him in the desert? It was the Word of God Christ used to refute the evil one. He lives by the Scriptures, just like every believer should. He's a man of Sabbath day worship with the Lord's people. Every Sabbath you would find him in church with God's people. And he's a man of prayer. How he prayed. And what was he doing when he prayed? He was communing with his Father in heaven like all of us need to do. As a man... As the mediator, he receives power and glory from the Father. He's been sent and commissioned by God the Father. And everything that's necessary for Christ to be the fulfilment of the Old Testament covenant and for Christ to establish the new covenant, everything, he says, has been delivered to me by my Father. All of the miracles that have been witnessed are on account of the fact that all things have been delivered to him. Total power over his created world as the man who is God. Diseases, death, demons, all must submit to his authority. The power to forgive sins. Perfect wisdom which leaves people speechless as he teaches. How? Why? Because all things have been delivered to him by his Father. He has this commission from the Father. Jesus is no usurper. He hasn't taken something to which he has no right. He's no fake. He's no snake oil salesman. All that he needs, he's in possession of in order that he might live a sinless life, in order that he might die for sinners to be their saviour. All things have been delivered into his hands, he says, from the Father. Jesus himself expounds on some of these thoughts at the start of that prayer that he prays, which is recorded in John chapter 17. Listen to Jesus as he prays to his Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. You see this relationship between father and son. This is eternal life, that they may know you. And you might think, well, I thought it was about knowing Christ. We see, to know Christ is to know the Father. Were you listening from John chapter 14? to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they've known that all things which you have given me are from you. I've given to them the words which you have given me. 
they've received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Do you see this intertwining between Father and Son in the Godhead? It's, it's the understanding and believing of this backstory to the gospel. It's, it's this backdrop to the gospel which is so important. And Jesus just keeps drawing back the curtain and saying, look, look, look into heaven and see and understand how Father and Son and Spirit are working in the gospel to bring you back to God. It's wonderful. He is heaven's promised one who has now become heaven's sent one for the salvation of sinners. And because of that, all things have been delivered to him by the one who sent him. God the Father. What, what comfort, what assurance this brings us. This is why you can sing, I will trust in the cross of my Redeemer. I will sing of blood that never fails, of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed, of death defeated, and life without end. Beautiful Saviour, wonderful Counselor, clothed in majesty, Lord of history, He's the way, the truth, the life. Star of the morning, glorious in holiness. He's the risen one, heaven's champion, and he reigns over all. How can you sing that? Why can you sing that? Because all things have been delivered to Christ from the Father. He has the commission of God the Father. We see something of the immeasurable superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ compared to we who are but men and women, the dust of the earth. Now, we confess that there are heights and depths in these things which are beyond our comprehension, but we can admire them in the spirit of a little child before their father. There are things to learn from these words. Uh, the great practical truth that all power and authority in everything that concerns your soul has been placed in the hands of Christ. Everything that he needs to deal with your soul for all eternity is placed in the hands of Christ. And you need to put your hand in his if you've never done that before, put your hand in his hand. Because he bears the keys of heaven and hell and of life and death. To him you must go for admission into heaven. He is the door. Through him you must enter. He is the shepherd. His is the voice you must hear. His is the voice you must follow and obey if you would not perish. He is the physician of souls. To him you must go if you would be cleansed of all of your sin. He is the bread of life. 
He is the one you must feed upon. If you would have your soul satisfied, you will find it nowhere else. He is the light. He's the one you must walk with if you would never be in darkness. He's the fountain you must wash in his blood if you would be cleansed and made ready for that day of account. If you have Christ, the one to, thing, the one to whom all things have been delivered, then you in him have all things. And finally, Christ's oneness with God the Father. And this is what he speaks of in the second half of verse 27. This is what he alludes to in that prayer that he prays in John chapter 17. These are the things that he's talking about with his disciples in John chapter 14. The oneness of the Father and the Son. This last week, I had to provide a reference for someone. And it's interesting because you sit down and you think you know someone, but then you have to put it into words and be fair and accurate and, uh, and give a proper impression. And you're trying to define their character. You're trying to explain their abilities. And you're suddenly challenged as to just how well you know someone. Many of you will have formed your own impression of what my three sons are like. And in similar fashion, for those of you who have children, I will have formed my own impression as to what your children are like. But if we were actually to sit down and talk to each other about our children, we'd probably discover some discrepancies in our conclusions. Because actually, there's things that mother and father know about son or daughter that only mum and father know about son or daughter. When it comes to the gospel, how can we really know what it is that the father requires? How can we be certain that the gospel will be sufficient for what the Father requires. When all of eternity is at stake, and eternity is a very long time, by the way, I don't want someone coming to me with nothing more than thoughts and opinions about what they think God is like and what they think God might require. I don't want sentences beginning with, well, the way I like to think about God is. I couldn't care less about the God that you have in your imagination. I'm interested in the God who actually is. What does he require? What does he say is necessary? The one whom one day... I will stand before him and have to give an account. What does he require? Who is able to tell me? Who is able to tell me and I know they're telling me the truth? I have wonderful news for you. 
because it was wonderful news for me. Next week, if you're here, you'll hear Jesus speaking these famous words. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can have absolutely you can have absolute confidence that he will because he can. How? Why? Because there is one who perfectly knows the Father and that is the Son. And there's one who perfectly knows the Son and that is the Father. And if you want to know about God, if you want to know what God requires of your soul, you listen to the one who knows him like no other. You listen to his son. Because to listen to the son is to listen to the father. To see the son is to see the father which is why we began our worship this morning reading those words from John chapter 14 where Jesus tells you that he and the Father are one. And I mentioned that prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17 where it's recorded. And in that prayer, a little later, Jesus says this, I pray for those who will believe in me that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Wow. That the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I've given them. Wow. That they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they, may be, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. And the Father and the Son draw us in to this relationship that they have together. That's why you can trust the gospel. That's why you can trust Christ. Because look at the end of verse 27 back in Matthew 11. There are others who now may also know the Father. Those to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If you're a Christian this morning... God has come to you by his Spirit in the person of Christ and revealed God to you. This is the gospel. And this is the Father. And this is the Savior. You need them. Will you come to them? The Father is sovereign over each one who comes to faith. Christ has received his Father's commission and Christ is one with his Father. So come to him.
in childlike faith. Come to him with empty hands and a repentant heart. Come to him devoid of strength, stripped of all your pride. Cry out to him for grace and mercy. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Come to him. Great blessing and grace awaits you. And that, God willing, will be our theme next week as we conclude this remarkable chapter. But come to Christ. There is no other.